Well, good morning. We are in our final week of our series on heaven and hell. And uh, as we begin this final sermon, I want to begin with a little bit of congregational participation. So, Stuart, forgive me, I forgot to tell you I was doing this. Uh, I'm going to turn on this, it's wireless one. And uh, I'm wondering if I can get two volunteers who would be willing to come up here and participate. Two volunteers. There might be a small Amazon gift card in it for you if you participate. Just raise your hand. There's one. Okay, right here and right here. All right, come on up. All right, so uh, they deserve applause. Okay, so this is Nate. He and I met earlier. And give us your name. Billy. Billy. Okay. So what we're going to do, we have a little Bible trivia quiz for y'all this morning. So uh, the winner will receive... (laughs) It's all right. It's okay. So the winner will receive a $5 Amazon gift card. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Billy. According to Genesis 1-1, who created the heavens and the earth? God. God. Good. All right. Excellent. Yeah, that's right. Round of applause. Okay. Okay, your question, Nate. What was the name of Isaiah's father? Uh, It wasn't Jacob, was it? It was not. It was Amos. Amos. Okay. All right. Billy, here we go. The Bible is divided into two major sections. Name them. Old Testament and New Testament. You got it. Old Testament, New Testament. All right. Okay, uh, Nate, in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel has three friends. Uh, What are their Hebrew names, right? So, not the Babylonian names, but the Hebrew ones. I I have no idea. You've got to study. All right. Their Hebrew names are Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, otherwise known to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, Billy, uh, we got one more for each person. Who wrote the book of First Peter? <laughs> Peter. Peter, that's correct. Okay. And finally, uh, Nate, Acts 17.34, you'll remember this is Paul's speech uh, on the Areopagus in Athens. Uh, there were two people who believed in the gospel when, after Paul preached the gospel, right at the end, Acts 17.34, two people, what were their names? <laughs> That would be Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris are their two names. So uh, give them a round of applause. I actually, I've got one for each of y'all for playing along. Good job, man. <laughs> now, now you're wondering why I did that, especially to Nate. Uh, why did we have that? Uh, the contest was obviously rigged. After the first question, you no doubt figured out this is not fair. Right? The, the, the deck is stacked against one person very heavily. The reason I did that, other than just having a little bit of fun this morning, was to illustrate something that I think a lot of us from time to time have felt about the way God has arranged the world. That all of us from time to time have had this feeling that it seems unfair. In the sense that some people start their lives with a lot more advantages than other people. In fact, some people even seem to begin their lives with more spiritual advantages, right? So, 
For example, over the last few weeks, as, as we've talked about heaven and hell, one of the things we've talked about, of course, is this idea that the scripture indicates that the only way to come to God and have eternal life, the only way is through believing in Jesus. We believe in Jesus to have eternal life, right? So the question comes up in our mind, well, what about those people who have never heard about Jesus? Right, You and I were privileged to be born in a country where the gospel is preached on almost every corner every week. We hear it all the time. You can turn on your TV even now and see Billy Graham preach the gospel to you. What about people who were born in a place where that's not the case and they've never heard the gospel of Jesus? Doesn't that seem unfair? What about people who can't understand What what about very small children or babies who die before they have the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ? That seems unfair. Another question that comes up is, uh, how is it fair or just for a person to be punished eternally, to experience eternal separation from God for sins that they committed during a finite lifetime? Right? In other words, why would the punishment be eternal when our lifetimes are only finite? Right? So all of these questions come up in our minds. I mentioned a few weeks ago the writer and former pastor Rob Bell, who wrote an entire book on the subject of hell. And one of the questions that he raised in that book, now I, I didn't agree with his conclusions in the book, right? but he raised some really good questions. Here are some of the questions that he raised, for example, of all the billions of people who have ever lived, will only a select number make it to a better place. And every single other person suffer torment and anguish forever. Is this acceptable to God? Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? That's a tough question. And my guess is it's a question that many of us in this room have wrestled with from time to time. Is this right? Is it fair? Why do some people hear the gospel when they're children and some people never hear it? Is that fair? Is that right? We're going to dive into some of those questions this morning because my sense is that there are even some in this room for whom these types of questions, man, they've just been a real struggle for you. Maybe because you have a family member or a friend who died not knowing Jesus. And you wonder, has God dealt with that person rightly? Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you struggle with these questions of God's justice. So for the last three weeks, as we've talked about heaven and hell, every week these types of questions have emerged, and I've sort of said, uh, put those questions off to week four. So here we are in week four. And what we're going to do this morning is uh, take a stab at answering some of these questions. And I want to be clear, some of these questions are not actually answered thoroughly or directly in the Bible. Right, so I won't be able to answer every single question about God's uh, mysterious election of those who will go to be with him forever. I can't answer all those questions, but what we're going to do this morning is we're going to set some boundary markers in place. And what I mean is this, we're going to say, what does the Bible tell us about who God is? 
And based on what we know about who God is, we're going to do our best to answer some of these questions, right? So we'll set some stakes in the ground around God's character and we'll say, we're going to stay within these boundaries of God's character. And I think if we're within those boundaries of God's character, that's going to help us when we run across these questions to say, ultimately, I can trust God. Ultimately, I can trust God's judgments even if I don't understand them because I know the kind of God that I worship. Because I know that I have a God who is just and who is gracious and who is always, always reaching out. That's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at the character of God from Scripture in order to walk through some of these questions. So the first thing we want to look at about God's character this morning is simply this, that God is just. God is just. When we talk about God's judgments, we want to use the word just. Now, you may remember last week that we talked a little bit about the difference between fairness and justice, right? So my sermon is actually titled a little bit in a misleading way this morning, because the question I put up there is, is God unfair? Really, what we want to ask is, is God unjust? And here's the distinction you may remember. Fairness would mean everybody gets the same thing, right? So fairness, for example, would look like this. Uh, I have three children and we have uh, an iPad. My wife has an old iPad that she sometimes lets them play games on. And so they might get 20 minutes one afternoon to play a game on the iPad. But invariably what will happen is one of them will begin, my son, for example, will begin his 20 minutes and will lose track of time. And he will get 21 minutes and 47 seconds. And then we'll remember and we go, oh, Samuel, it's Abigail's turn. Hand off the iPad to her for her 20 minutes. And what does she say? Samuel got 21 minutes and 47 seconds because she's been timing while we've been in the other room. I want my 21 minutes and 47 seconds as well because that would be fair. That would be equal, right? That's fairness. Now, what is justice? Justice is, hey, nobody deserves the iPad at all. Give it to me. Nobody deserves time on the iPad. Why? It's, It's ours. We bought it. We own it. We control it. We manage it. You're in our house. It's our iPad, right? That, that's justice. I can take it away. It would not be wrong of me to take it away. Would it be unfair? Yes. Would it be unjust? No. And you remember we talked briefly about Matthew chapter 20, this parable of the vineyard where the vineyard owner hires different people at different times of day, right? And at the end of the day, everybody gets paid the same no matter how much they work. Some people work All day long, some people only worked an hour. Everybody gets paid the same. And the guys who showed up early, they say, hey, that's unfair. We should get more. And the landowner says, hey, I agreed with you for a denarius. I haven't done you wrong. I have a right to do with my money what I would like to do with my money. If I choose to be gracious to those who came later, that's my prerogative. But I've not done you wrong. Wrong. When we talk about the justice of God, again, what we mean is this God always makes the right decision. 
God always judges correctly. Let's look at a couple of passages very briefly. One is from the book of Job, Job chapter 34. This is from the speech of a man called Elihu, who was one of Job's friends, the only of Job's friends who actually said the right thing as you read through the book of Job. And and Elihu said this, therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness and from the almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly and the almighty will not pervert justice. God always does what is right. The book of Romans Chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. Here's where we're going. When we say God is just, this is what we mean, that when God makes judgments about our eternal destiny, he always judges correctly. Nobody will be able to stand before God and say, you got it wrong. Nobody will be able to stand before God and be able to say, look, I didn't earn eternal separation from you. Okay, because the reality is, as we walk through the scripture, here's what we're going to see. That if God does strictly what is just toward all of us, we all have earned hell. We all have earned eternal condemnation. As you look especially through the first three chapters of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's great book about the gospel. About the good news of Jesus. But he spends really the first three chapters talking about the idea of sin and where sin leads. And how sin leads to death and separation from God. I want to look for a minute at a few passages from Romans chapter 1 and 2. Paul wrote this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Here's what he's getting at. That ever since the beginning of time, God has been revealing himself. God has been calling out, this is who I am. So you you go outside and you look at the sky, you look at nature, you look at creation. It says God's power and divine nature have been clearly seen, right? So that God has always been speaking. And he's going to go on and he's going to say, look, it's also been written in your hearts, in your conscience. There's nobody who's going to be able to stand before God and say, but God, if only you had told me who you were. If only you had told me that this particular sin was wrong. If only you had told me that I shouldn't rebel against you. If only you had let me know. God is going to say, no, you have no excuse. Every single one of us, as we've walked through the world, has seen what God is saying, Paul says. And what we've answered in response is, I don't, want, I don't want your rule over my life. I don't want your kingship over my life. I don't want you, God. I want to be my own God. That's sin. That is what leads to eternal condemnation. As you look at Romans 2, Paul says it's not just creation, it's also in our hearts. In our conscience itself. He says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, 
These not having the law are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. In other words, even those who say, hey, I never had a Bible. I never heard about God's moral standards. The scripture would say it's written in your hearts and by the testimony of your own conscience, you're condemned. No matter who you are, no matter what your moral standard is, the scripture would say, whatever your moral standard is, you violated it at some point in your life. Because somewhere on your heart is written certain realities about who God is. So you say, I believe in in my heart of hearts that honesty is correct, that telling the truth is right. And yet I've lied. I believe that love is better than hatred, and yet... My heart is often filled with hatred and resentment. And so whether I know God or not, I have violated my own conscience. It's interesting. I I ran across a book several years ago by an evolutionary psychologist. He's an atheist. But the book was called Moral Minds. And he was trying to grapple with this concept that it seems like people have a moral compass that is independent of their understanding of religion. He said this, there appears to be some kind of unconscious process driving moral judgments without its being accessible to conscious reflection. What's he getting at? He says, look, I I don't believe in God, but it's really strange that people seem to have a concept of right and wrong anyway. Why is that? Well, the Apostle Paul would say because it's written on our hearts, because God placed it there. And yet, as Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we say God is just, what would justice demand? Condemnation for everybody. Now, of course, that does does raise a question. And the question is this. I mentioned it at the beginning. Is it right, though, for condemnation to be eternal when our sin is finite? Is it right for condemnation to be eternal? to go on longer than it took us to commit the sin. Here's here's how I have thought about this as as we look at the scripture. It's, It's this principle. The severity of a punishment is not determined by how long it takes to commit the crime. Let me say that again. The severity of a punishment is not determined by how long it takes to commit the crime. Here's what I mean. Go back about, uh, I don't know, 17 years and think about the Enron scandal. If you're not old enough to remember the Enron scandal, this was a large corporation where the executives were convicted of, of fraud and of falsifying records and of stealing money, right? It took them years to commit this fraud over a period of years. They committed fraud and they were caught and they were convicted and they were sentenced to prison. The longest prison sentence for any of them was 15 years, right? 15 years. And that guy's working on trying to get out now and he might get out before his full sentence is up. Right? So, so it took them years and they were sentenced to years. On the other hand, if you were to walk out in the street And in cold blood, murder an officer of the law. How long would that take you? Seconds. How long would your sentence be? The rest of your life. Why? Because the length and severity of the punishment is determined by the severity of the crime. 
and not by how long it takes to commit the crime, right? So when we talk in eternal terms, let me put it a different way. My guess is that if I were to say this morning, do you know of anybody either in history or in the world today that you'd say that person deserves to go to hell? Now, you probably could think of somebody, right? There's probably somebody out there. You go, man, Hitler, Hitler, he deserves to go to hell. And your mind immediately runs to those individuals who have committed heinous acts. And you say, yeah, he does not belong in heaven. But here's what happens. We see the severity of somebody else's crime. And we overlook the severity of our own. So we see the severity of the really bad person. And we say, yeah, my greed and my pride and my rejection of God and my disobedience and my dishonesty it's not really that bad. I'm basically nice. Right? Everybody else, eh, right? This is why, as we talked about last week, even among those who believe in hell, only 2% think they're actually going there. Because we think we're pretty good. And what the scripture would say is we underestimate the severity of sin by a factor of infinity. Because sin is a rejection of the God who made us. Sin is a rejection of the life he wants us to have. And so God is just in condemning sinners. But as we move forward, we also see this, that it's not merely that God is just. God is also gracious. God is also gracious. And and this is the heart of the gospel that we preach. If you're here maybe for the first or second time and you're not really familiar with our church, we are called Grace Bible Church for a reason because we believe and preach rabidly the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's at the core of what we believe and the core of what we teach that although God would be just to condemn all of us, he offered salvation through his son. And so his own son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross in our place. He took on himself the punishment for our sin. And he died. And then he rose again. And John 3.16, probably the first verse that you memorized in Sunday school. Even if you didn't go to church too much, you've probably seen John 3.16 at an NFL game. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That whoever believes in Jesus escapes the just condemnation for their sin. So that God can be just and gracious at the same time. That's the beauty of the gospel. That the justice of God, the punishment for our sin, fell on his son. Now, of course, that raises a couple of questions, as we mentioned at the beginning. If I can have eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ, what about those who are incapable of believing in Jesus? So the questions that often come up are, for example, what about babies? Babies cannot understand the gospel. What if a baby dies prior to being able to understand about Jesus? Or what about somebody with a severe mental handicap where they simply can't understand the scripture. What do we, how do we approach those questions? And this is where I think the grace of God helps us to answer, right? The scripture doesn't directly address that question, at least as not, not as extensively as we might like. But there are hints throughout the scripture 
about how God would answer this question according to his grace. Let me offer a couple of passages that I think will help us walk this through. The first one is this, 1 Timothy chapter 2. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, so here we have sort of a a boundary marker, a stake in the ground. We say, what is God's desire for people? Well, God's desire for people is that they would be saved, that they would come to the knowledge of truth. In other words, God is not hoping or wishing for people to be condemned, right? So God desires people to be saved and to understand the truth. Now the question comes up, but what about those who can't? They can't come to a knowledge of the truth because their minds are not able. I think there are a couple other passages that can give us clues. One of them is this passage from the book of Luke and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. What's he getting at? The person who knows everything about the Bible, who's gone to church their entire lives, and yet rejects the gospel, that person will be held more accountable on the day of judgment than the person who cannot or has not understood and believed the good news. To whom much is given, much is required. In other words, Jesus indicates several times in the Gospels that the level of one's judgment is based upon the level of information the level of ability one has to understand. That's why he would say to a couple of cities in Galilee, he'd say, hey, your judgment is going to be worse than Tyre and Sidon. Right? Tyre and Sidon were two very wicked cities in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, hey, Galilee, I'm right here. The Messiah is standing in your midst and you're rejecting me. They didn't have me. You do. Your sin will be judged more harshly. Where am I going with this? Ultimately, here's what I think the scripture would say. When we talk about babies, when we talk about those unable to understand is this. That God will not ultimately hold people responsible to believe in something they are incapable of believing in. God will not hold somebody responsible for something they are incapable of doing. Which is why I, I would make the case from the scripture that those who die unable in some way, mentally, to understand the good news. God finds a way for the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to apply to their account. And we'll see them with him in heaven. Think about it this way. Our own legal system recognizes this kind of distinction. Some of you may have uh, small toddlers, uh, you know, 18 months to three years. And if you do, I'm praying for you, right? That's That's a challenging age. It's challenging because they're unpredictable and extremely energetic and defiant, right? So it's, it's sort of a toxic mixture of difficult personality traits. But you may have been in a store, say you go to Target or something like that, and you're rolling down the aisle with that kid in a cart. And as you roll down the aisle, that kid, that two-year-old reaches out and just grabs something off the shelf and throws it into the cart. And invariably, you don't realize it until you get to the parking lot. And you're loading up your car and you look down and you go, oh, there's a stuffed toy ducky in my cart that I did not pay for. So what do you do? You take that toy ducky and you walk back into Target 
and you walk up to the clerk and you say, I'm so sorry, my child took this off the shelf and we didn't pay for it. Now, what does the clerk say? That's stealing. He's going to baby jail, right? Okay, so they call the baby police. They put tiny little handcuffs on him, put him in a little cruiser and take him to a tiny cell. Well, no, of course not. Why? Because the child doesn't understand the concept of stealing or ownership or any of those things. The the kid just did what babies do. And so our our legal system isn't going to drop him in a cell. As you look at the scripture, the consistent testimony of the scripture is that God is even more gracious than our legal system by a factor of infinity. So that those who are unable to understand even the revelation of God in creation and conscience, those who are unable to even understand those concepts, I do not believe God will hold them accountable for things they cannot understand because he's gracious. Now, the next question, of course, that always emerges from this is, okay, that's, that's good. What about those, though, that they can understand, but they just haven't heard? All right, what about those, their minds work fine, their, their hearts and, and, and minds are, are fine and able to understand moral uh, concepts from the world, but they just haven't heard. And, and the classic illustration tends to be, you know, somebody in some tribal culture somewhere, right? They don't have access to a TV, there's no church, there's never been a missionary, they've never heard about the gospel on the day of judgment, what's going to happen to that person? And that leads us into our final point this morning. Not only is God just, not only is God gracious, but thirdly, God is reaching out to everybody. God is always reaching out to everybody. Right, and what we mean by that is that that as you look at the scripture, and we've hinted around this this morning, what we ultimately see is that the story of the Bible is not a story of people looking around to find God And God trying to hide. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is actually the story of a God who has in every possible way said, I'm here. Here I am. This is what I'm like. I'm good. I'm just. I'm loving. And people say, no, thank you. And turn around and walk the other way. That's the story of the scripture. We saw it in Romans 1. God has written in creation. His eternal power and divine nature. God has written it on our conscience. In Acts chapter 17, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Uh, In fact, it was in our little quiz earlier. Paul's speech in Athens on Mars Hill. Where he's talking to a group of pagans who don't believe in God and they don't believe in Jesus. And there's this passage right in the midst of that speech, Acts 17, verses 26 to 27. It says, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. What is Paul getting at? Where you live, when you were born, where God has placed you, he has arranged the world. Why? Because he wants you to know him. 
Because his hope is you'll seek for him. His hope is you will look around at creation and you will look inward at your conscience and you will eventually encounter the word of God and you will say that is true. So that God is always calling out and ultimately those who simply have not heard, the scripture actually indicates they will stand before God without excuse. And here's, we're going to take the argument one step further. Because as you look at the book of Hebrews in particular, and Acts in a moment, we'll see this. Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Why? For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is what? A rewarder of those who seek him. Here's here's where we're going. The person who is genuinely seeking God, but just can't find him. That's what we call a straw man. The person, the person who's genuinely seeking God, but God turns and hides himself, the scripture says that person actually doesn't exist. Instead, biblically, you say, well, what about other religions? People make up other gods because they're trying to find God. The scripture actually says people make up alternate gods because they don't want to worship the God who actually exists. So we create gods in our image that we can control. But instead, the testimony of Scripture is those who seek God, they find him. So that God gives them more information and more information and more information until they come to know Jesus. Let me give you a couple of biblical illustrations of this and then a few modern day illustrations of this as well. Acts chapter 8. Some of you will remember the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, the royal official. If you don't remember the story in a nutshell, Philip was an early deacon or servant in the church, but he was also an evangelist. He was a godly man who shared the gospel far and wide. And one day God said, hey, Philip, I want you to go over to a particular road, the road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And it says it's a desert road. Normally there's, there's not a whole lot of people around. There's not a lot to eat. People don't just park out there in the desert. But Philip goes, okay. So he goes where the spirit leads him. And it says he gets there and he looks over and there's an Ethiopian man, an official of the queen. And this man is sitting inside his chariot and he's reading a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now that would have been very unusual in that day and age. Most people didn't have access to uh, reading material. And, and even if they did, they probably couldn't read. And even if they could read for an Ethiopian Gentile to say, I want to read the Jewish scriptures would have been very unusual. So here's this guy, and as his chariot's going along, he's trying to read Isaiah. And keep in mind, people read out loud most of the time back then. They didn't read silently. So Philip can hear him reading Isaiah, and it says, the Spirit of God says, Philip, go up and join that chariot, right? And I love the imagery. It says, Philip ran up, and so this guy's on in his chariot, and here's Philip running alongside him. And he goes, hey, do you even understand what you're reading? And the guy looks over and goes, well, how can I? If nobody explains it to me, Philip goes, please stop the chariot, right? And so he stops, (laughs) Philip gets inside and the guy was reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, the death of God's Messiah. And it says, Philip started with that passage and he explained the gospel to him. And the guy believes and he says, let me get baptized right now. Because he was seeking God. God sent him the gospel. Two chapters later, Acts chapter 10, you see the same thing with a Gentile man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. 
who had been studying the Hebrew scriptures and who had connected himself to the Jewish people. And it said he feared God. And he is praying one day. And God says, Cornelius, I'm going to send you a dude who's going to tell you about the Messiah. And simultaneously, God speaks to Peter, the apostle, and says, Peter, you need to go talk to Cornelius because he's ready, because he's seeking. And so Peter goes and they, they meet at Cornelius's house. And it's one of those moments where it's like, you had a dream. I had a dream. We both had a dream because God answered your prayers that you want to know who Jesus is. So here's who he is. And it says Cornelius and his whole household believed because God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let me quickly give you two or three modern illustrations of this, because it's very easy for us to go, well, yeah, that happened in the book of Acts, but we live in 2018. It's a very different world. So a, a couple of illustrations. Several years ago in our church service at our Anderson campus, I heard a testimony by a friend of one of our pastors. The man's name who gave the testimony was Babu. Babu was from India. And he told his story about how he grew up in a Hindu home in India where they had, they had dozens of gods around the house. Gods that they looked to, to help them with their crops, to help them with their health, to help them with every conceivable aspect of their lives. And yet, early on in his life, his family started experiencing tragedy. So, Babu's mother died, Babu's sister died, various people close to him died. And he started wondering, why are they dying when we're praying to all these gods? So, he went to his grandmother and he said, Grandma, which of these gods that I see controls life and death. Which one can prevent death? And like any good grandmother, she said, you ask too many questions. Please go play. But he couldn't get that question out of his mind. There has to be a God who controls life and death. There has to be one. And so all his life into his young adulthood, he kept searching. He read all of the Hindu texts and ultimately, he had, he had a vision of a man coming to a particular village who would hand him a book. And in that book, he would learn about the God who controlled life and death. And in the scripture, he learned about Jesus because God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And this past summer, I was in Athens, Greece on a mission trip uh, with some friends from our Creekside campus. And we had an interpreter who had come from Pakistan. He had left Pakistan and found his way into Athens, mostly for economic reasons. Uh, but when he got into Athens, he found he had a hard time finding work and making a living. He had grown up in a Muslim home and he had left everything behind. And here he is trying to make a living. And one day he got a job. This man's name was Hamid. He got a job, uh, like a day job, to demolish a wall of a house. And he was the only one hired. He goes into this house and he picks up a, a hammer and he begins to demolish this wall. And it only took him about an hour to realize, I'm in way over my head. I can't do this in one day. And so he quit. He dropped the tool and he walked out the door and he thought, I'm just going to move on with my life because I can't finish this job. I don't finish the job. I won't get paid. So he begins to walk away. And as he's walking away, the man who hired him chased him down and said, wait, 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 friend, wait, come back. And he thinks I'm in trouble now. He turns around and the man who hired him said, I need to pay you for the portion of the day that you did work. So Hamid took the money 
And he walked away and he thought, now why would he do that? Why would he pay me? Nobody else was around to, to see that he was going to pay me for the part of the day that I worked. What would make him act honestly? He said, I didn't grow up uh, believing that we needed to treat people honestly like that, even when nobody was watching. And he said, wait a second. He must think his God is watching. What God does he worship? Well, by this point, he had gone a ways down the road, and so he couldn't go back and ask that man. But he thought, what, what is the God? that people around here in this country have worshipped. And he began to read and he began to study and he came across the truth of Jesus Christ. Because God is a rewarder of those who seek him. Last one, one more. A few years ago I asked some of our missionaries, tell me stories of men and women who have encountered Jesus in cultures where it seems like Jesus is present. And one person in, in a country that was primarily Muslim, where the gospel was not prevalent at all, she says this. She said, the main thing I remember is one woman who told me she was dreaming she fell in a pit of trash, slime, and filth and couldn't get out. She kept trying and trying but couldn't climb out by herself. She looked up and saw a man in bright white clothes at the top of the pit. He reached down to pull her out and he had a hole in his hand. And she began to wonder, who is that with a hole in his hand? And she found Jesus Christ. As we look at the scripture and as we look at how God operates, what we see is that God is absolutely just and gracious and he's always reaching out. And he can speak however he wants. And he chooses to speak in creation and in conscience and in the scripture and in our hearts and minds and mostly through Jesus Christ. So that ultimately, everybody will be able to say, yeah, God's judgments are true. God is right, even if I don't understand. As we close then, by way of application, a few thoughts. One is this, trust him. Not only with your own life. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, the primary message for you this morning is what we talked about earlier. You can know you have eternal life if you believe in Jesus. And so this morning, God might not be asking you to worry about his justice toward other people, but instead to say, what's the condition of my own heart before God? Do you know you have eternal life? If you do, you can trust his judgment. Secondly, proclaim the gospel. You may be the vessel God uses to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to somebody who is seeking him right now. And so proclaim the gospel. And then thirdly, worship him. Worship him. Daily be thankful for his justice, for his grace in Jesus Christ, and for the fact that he's reaching out. We're going to celebrate communion as we close, and as the men go get the elements ready and the band comes up, here's what I would ask us to do during this time of worship. Communion is an opportunity for us to worship God for all that he has done in Jesus Christ. In communion, what we're remembering is that Jesus gave his life for ours. Jesus died in our place. And then three days later, he rose again. And the people of God have celebrated this regularly for thousands of years. And the reason is because we want to remember that even when we were running away, God came and found us through Jesus. And so as the, as the elements come forward in, in just a moment, I, I want us just to spend this time and, and as the music is playing to say, thank you, God. And then prepare me to be an ambassador of the good news of Jesus 
as I go out into the world. When the men are ready, feel free to come forward. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. Most of all, we're grateful for our Savior. We praise you that even when we were running away, even when we were lost, you sought us out. We praise you for your grace, and we pray we would proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.